Hello everyone, my name is Jorvos and I devote a great deal of my time in studying Aristotle and uh, Plato because I consider it to truly be uh, a life rewarding and life changing endeavor. I'm before we get into it, I am curious. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest these days in the Stoics, in Socrates. There's been a few books written in the last 10 years on trying to draw out practical lessons out of Aristotle. And I think you personally, and you study this stuff, it, it can it can feel very esoteric. But what you're saying is in your study of Aristotle, it has helped ch it helps change your life and it helps you to change your behavior in some way. Um, yes, indeed. And uh, the first question is, of course, to what am I answering? Ye yes, indeed. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I asked about three things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so effectively speaking, uh, when we um, live our life, we kind of come to a place of habit. And that place of habit is... Uh, a place where we feel very comfortable and at the same time, a place where the autopilot is running a lot. And it's exactly at that place where we feel boredom. And a person may live in the same corner of the world for 30 years and every day have a different experience. But they may also live in that corner for 30 years and every day have exactly the same boring experience. Yeah. And what do philosophers like Plato and Aristotle offer to those who are willing to put the time and effort and uh, really get to grips with them and understand uh, not just what they, these philosophers, philosophers, this person are trying to say, but also what we want to say, that we do not have the words to say it. Because when someone is bored or they are in a difficult situation and they don't know how to get out, they're trying to find a reason, they're trying to find a why. This is happening. And it's very easy for a person to fool themselves and fall into uh, a hole which justifies what they are going through and then blind themselves from seeing how they can change his experience and then even have a different experience like uh, in the example I mentioned before every day whilst being at the same place. So, uh, yeah. Are you, well, that, uh, maybe you're leading me down the, <clears throat> leading me down the path to uh, recently, I just reread, uh, the allegory of the cave from Plato and the allegory of the cave sounds like, you know, doing the same. Uh, is there an element of, is it just looking for novelty? Is it the excitement of studying philosophy because there are great thinkers wrestling with things about the world you hadn't thought of and that's intellectually exciting? Or is there a sense in which you think philosophy is actually uncovering some illusion that you've lived with? Either you lived with, or you look out at the world and you're like, I was wrong about what the world is, which is the argument made by Plato slash Socrates in the allegory of the cave that we are seeing the shadows of real things. They're not real. So to you, is it the fun of philosophy? Or do you think philosophy for you personally is uncovering illusions you had about yourself and the world and you're getting closer to truth? Well, that's a very interesting question. And um, I wasn't exactly referring to the allegory of the cave, but it, it's a good place to start. Yeah. So... I might as well say that in the way I meant it before, every word that we utter is actually an illusion in the cave. And the language, the whole of the language that we use is also uh, uh, like part of this 
play of illusions. Because in doing so, we conceptualize the world in a specific way. And when we conceptualize the world in one specific way, which is never completely correct, and it's never completely correct because the sign or the word tree does not include the tree itself. So um, there's uh, another myth of the true self. All these people who want to find their true selves and they think they cannot find them. Well, my advice is to shut up and look in the mirror. Because there lies uh, everyone's true self. This is who we are. And um, in this way, uh, my notion is uh, a bit pre-linguistic in that what Plato and Aristotle, through their words, enable uh, the other to do is to try and, I don't know if that's possible, think without words. So when I look at a tree, according to everything I know and everything I learned from school and everything that was uh, given to me by, uh, I don't know, documentaries and YouTube videos, etc. I will uh, instinctively say, oh, these are leaves. But like, there's no, these are leaves inside the leaves. They're just there. And then the whole tree and the way we consider it structured into different parts are two different things because the tree is there And our conceptualization of the tree is here in our mind, in our brain. So maybe it sounds very intuitive that a tree has a trunk and a tree has leaves and a tree has fruit, etc. But all these are parts of our conceptualization of the tree. As far as the tree is concerned, it's all one thing. Uh, A parallel example is when we discovered viruses. Before discovering um, the microorganisms like microbes or other stuff like viruses, um, we thought, you know, like people just get sick and maybe it's some kind of magic, like someone cast a spell or it's a curse of a god or it's miasma, or they have the wrong temperament. Oh, what do we do? We have to bleed them. Here are some leeches to put on their knee to bleed them, etc. And And so people had a completely different conceptualization about what diseases were and how to treat them. Then someone invented the microscope, and then they could see like all these little beings like moving about and 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 suddenly because we could see it it's not like they were speaking to us saying like we are viruses we are microbes we could see it we could make the connection and then suddenly like everyone in the street like um, someone sneezes oh you might have a virus maybe it's a cold Okay, this is fascinating to me because your first example of the tree strikes me as, for instance, you said, you know, you're getting wrapped up in thinking circles. If you think there's no, if you're looking for your true self, well, just shut up and look at yourself. That reminds me far less of Socrates and Aristotle and far ma- far more uh, of Taoism, which literally says, well, I mean, there's this phrase, those who know do not speak and those who speak do not know. In other words, there is some barrier. Language creates a barrier. Being in the flow requires you to reach some simpler understanding of the way things are going and to get in the flow. Don't overthink and overcomplicate. 
Um, you need to be kind of in balance. There's all kinds of stuff, but it really is being skeptical of language, just as you are. Language is, it's creating a barrier between you and the truth, a barrier between you and what is. But Aristotle is all about slicing and dicing Mm -hmm. language into all its directions, into a huge graph of virtues or a huge graph of rules about what makes people feel things in plays. What is the appeal of Aristotle? Why aren't you reading Lao Tzu instead of Aristotle? Well, that, that's exactly the thing which I find interesting in Aristotle. It, it, it's that he doesn't just like dismiss language. He really is within language and he's trying to find how things uh, like fit into different places. How do we do this process? It, it, it's, it's kind of instead of like uh, just dismissing. And I, I have to preface this by saying that I, I have never read anything of Taoism. Maybe now with your suggestion, I read uh, Taoism as well. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how they dismiss the, the it or anything. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying like, instead of just dismissing it and going like, oh yeah, that. Like actually go all the way, go all in it and find out how exactly things uh, are put into different structures, into different systems. Because at the end of the day, um, it's not that, uh, okay, we have found the answer, just shut up and look at the world. No one will do that. Instead, everyone is engaging in different layers of language games, confusing each other and themselves, while thinking they're speaking some kind of truth. Okay, well, if you put a better spin on your idea than giving it to the allegory, the thing we were going to talk about today was another Socratic dialogue by Plato, the Protagoras or Protagoras. And I like it because I didn't know it was going to be Echo, another uh, dialogue I'd read, Gorgias, And they're both about sophistry. So they're both about this thing that drives Socrates up the wall. He hates these people with a passion. People who are paid to make people good speakers, convincers, and rhetoricians and politicians. People who will take and they can argue something either way. They're just teaching you the elements of how to argue. And it drives him crazy because he thinks... I mean, he he, bla- he thinks this is evil. I mean, he thinks it's evil to teach people not about the truth and about how to explore the truth, but to convince people of something. But it's interesting. So, so as you said, there was echoes of that in what you said about <clears throat> in and I maybe in some people could say, shut up and don't listen and just observe the world the way it's supposed to be. But the vast majority of human beings, we are language beings and we use language all the time. So we're in these increasingly complex games of language do Socrates or Aristotle, you see, actually, they're they're digging into the language, but they also seem to want to get to the truth. And is language, given the fact that language is kind of illusory and maybe you can't get to the truth, is it like a is it a poor experiment? Did they not get anywhere? Because language language can't language can't get you there. I'm only wondering if. Well. I'm just going to say that that's a continuous discussion and it has not been resolved. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, um, generally speaking, of course, there are many questions that um, still need to be answered. And uh, as you said, we're language beings. So uh, there's always like a contest between describing, like having let's say a primary experience, like being out there in the world, experiencing something, and then putting that thing into words. So um, let's just say that a lot of people have um, leisurely sat in their living room, picked a copy of the Odyssey, and read the stories of Achilles and Ajax, and Odysseus, etc. And uh, they felt a bit epic whilst reading them. Maybe they pictured a few epic scenes according to the input that they have received 
from existing films and their fantasy. Uh, and then they went, great read. I'll take a picture and tell all my friends that I read this. But, <laughs> you know, I think that in order to truly understand Achilles, maybe one has to commit some uh, physical brutalities first. Because, but at the, at the same time, that's not something I'm recommending. But it's more like, what does it really mean? How do I really connect with what is being written there if I haven't lived it for myself? And it's kind of like um, another trap which I think exists a lot in the academia is that there are all these philosophers and everyone is supposed to like uh, take a few bits of each philosopher and study them separately. And then each philosopher, of course, has their own language and they have their own terms and each term means something, well, the only person who can really explain to you what this term means is the person who coined it. After that, it, it's kind of like a guessing game. What, what does this person really mean? And then, of course, am I sabotaging myself? I mean, Plato and Aristotle, they lived thousands of years ago. So, like, how do we... And that, that's the thing. That's the thing. Like, first, in order to engage with the text, I have to recognize that whatever I'm going to produce out of it, like my notes, my thoughts about them, everything, they are judgments. And these judgments are prone to change as I further and further engage with the text. So the, the best I can do, if I really want to understand it, is go through the whole thing and every time be willing to take the time to revise. And then it's a time game. And then it, 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 it comes to, like, uh, what do I really love doing in the world? What do I find to be really worth doing in the world? And then these questions um, are already uh, grasped and answered by Aristotle in the ethics, for example. Will you give a sample or an example in your thinking of how a question is sort of asked and answered in a satisfactory fashion to you by this thinker from thousands of years ago? Well, is, is there anything that jumps out at you? So when you say Aristotle's question, these things and come to some answers, because I, re I read the same thing. I completely agree with you. Aristotle is absolutely digging into what are these words? What is courage? What is cowardice? What is virtue? What does it feel like to be virtuous? What do we say is virtuous? So kind of exploring what does this word mean? And when you get done, you think a kind of a question has been answered. Or is there a particular thing you pull out of the ethics and say, that's a good example of something I could, I could use that. Um, well, what I can start with uh, when attempting to answer your question is to, to say that uh, Aristotle spent years just debating things, just having dialogues with other people live. Um, he was part of uh, Plato's Academy for quite a while. And there, uh, as I understand it, they would act out the dialogues like theatrical plays. And then people in the audience, for example, it might be Aristotle or someone else, they would then pose questions. And then everyone together would try to like, uh, establish uh, like a type of dialectic or like a competition of words. But instead of uh, having as a goal of this competition for one side to win the argument, like a competition versus lawyers, it would be for one side to make the most possible convincing case with the precondition that this case could be uh, taken apart tomorrow and a better case would be made. Now, beyond that, that's the first part. There was a second part, and this is Aristotle and his service. Uh, after a while, once he managed to get enough followers, he would send them out all over Greece and give them tasks. Like, I want you to go and live at that city and figure out their constitution and figure out their habits and how they live and whether they're happy or not. And by happy, I mean this, this, and this. 
And then these people would be like, yeah, why not? And not because they, they were getting paid, not because Aristotle had like some kind of, uh, how do you call it, pyramid scheme where he would like funnel customers to them so they could make money or something, but because they understood that by going through these trials, they, they would reach a better level intellectually and they would be closer to what I saw, where they would be closer to their teacher in that way. And, and so they went about and they uh, collected this information and they made their studies and they were kept, they, they were in touch the whole time with Aristotle. And then when they came back, they could all come together and they could write books like the politics. Is that, so in, are you discovering in your own life then that it's not just the reading of the philosophy, but as you said, like as the example of the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Odyssey, especially the Iliad, I know 20 years or so ago, there was somebody who was working with soldiers with PTSD, and they found that reading parts or all of the Iliad, that this really was alive for people who have experienced bloody, murderous, fatal warfare. So people who have been involved as soldiers in conflicts, the Iliad rang true in a way that people who have not fought in wars, it does not ring true for them. And I, I had my dad tell me that. He went to Vietnam, and he said stuff that he knew before and after. He had a different experience. For you, does the philosophy, it's not just intellectual, are there experience, does it lead you to want to go experience more? I mean, maybe that goes back to the first thing you said, which is, you know, a person can live in a place for 30 years and repeat the same day over and over again. Another person can have a different day every day. Are you not just reading philosophy or trying to have a different day every day? Um, yeah, I, I, I try to um, test different things. And... Um, and, and with this, I, I mean that I genuinely go out in the world after having learned something, and I try to see how it exactly applies. And um, in this way, I, I have to make a distinction between uh, something that I uh, listened uh, like very recently about... Uh, <clears throat> There was like this person who I don't really know who was saying that, um, and you know, I felt personally insulted. Like they said that they didn't want to participate in the reading of Aristotle because they didn't want to get their hands dirty with the trifles of language and logic. But they want <laughs> okay. to participate in uh, reading groups or have uh, or read books that opened new worlds for them. And for me, that was completely paradoxical. Like if, if I don't get, let's say my hands dirty with language and logic, how can I open the new worlds in the first place? And I think it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I don't want to understand how I can uh, be an active force uh, in the world and be able to control different parameters of how I conceptualize my world and how not, not just conceptualize it as in I'm, I'm living in a, uh, I don't know, some uh, Chinese work camp in atrocious conditions, but actually I conceptualize the world as being strewn with flowers and me having leisure time 24, 24 hours a day, but rather how I can make these changes in my life, which can immediately uh, yield uh, results in my health and in my connection with other people, make me a more genuine, authentic person. And uh, I, I think that it, it all starts by calibrating the way we think. And if we are not willing to get into the, the to do the dirty work with language and logic, which are very core fluent or maybe even the same thing in a way. Um, don't quote me on that, though it's on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, we, we just want other people to tell us nice stories. We want some wise person to shoot wisdoms at us. 
then we are already at uh, the dialogue Protagoras or the dialogue Gorgias. And uh, this is where I, I segue into this, like um, Protagoras in the dialogue. He is uh, a person who is very conscious of trends. He checks the latest news. He sees the latest trends. He, he, he's kind of like a charmer. He smooth talks you into different things. He tells you that he cares. He tells his students that he cares about them. He tells his students that he's going to uh, give them knowledge that will make them rich. He just, that they will get better with the ladies. Like, oh, everything that they want to hear. But actually, all that he wants is described in the very first part of the dialogue when Socrates enters into the, the house of Callias, where Protagoras is housed, and everyone is following Protagoras around like a school of fish. Like, as Protagoras slightly leans 20 degrees to the right, everyone in unison slightly leans 20 degrees to the right. Protagoras opens his mouth. Everyone's ear becomes the ears of foxes, like, ping! They all want to hear his wise words. And, well, now I differentiate between the actual figure, Protagoras, who was uh, a philosopher, in a way, and a sophist, and the caricature which Plato drew there, um, which is just an image of some aspects of Protagoras. All Protagoras has there are the right words to get uh, the first ticket to go through the door. And, and all he wants is to get inside the building. And with this uh, metaphor, I mean, he just has the right presentation to get into a person's like mind. And once in, he is in, his, in this person's mind, he plays a symbolic role. He's this wise person who is going to solve all your problems. And he has done his homework. He has all these wisdoms. So he just launches all these wisdoms all the time. Of course, these wisdoms are no real intellectual work of his own. He, he has done just enough work to kind of understand what's being said by other people. And then he kind of just like grabs it and annotates it in some note. And, and so it's just the work of many other people is being encapsulated into like a few phrases that he spent a good amount of time learning by heart and disseminating. And so when Socrates asks him, um, so what, what, what is this fine young man going to get for, for his money? Right, the whole thing hinges. Socrates thinks the, 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 the tip of the spear he's gonna poke in here and pry this apart is what are you teaching? And it, this came on, I just read uh, Leo Tolstoy's Confession, which is about his depression, his feelings of suicide, his re-exploration of Christian worship. But he says a number of times he gets paid to teach and he repeats again and again, I wound up a teacher, but I didn't know what I was teaching. So I'm teaching and I'm being successful at it, but I don't know what I'm teaching. And he knows that Protagoras thinks he's teaching something, but for Socrates, yeah, he's focused on that thing. What are you teaching these young men? What are you trying to get across? Yeah, and it's exactly at that point where we, and, and, and thank you for this, and thank you for your recommendation, because I, I was thinking about a Russian author, so yeah, confession, oh. also. Uh, so what, what happens here is that instead of Protagoras just like saying something which he genuinely believes, he, he kind of has some background knowledge about Socrates, and he thinks he can charm Socrates as well. 
just by kind of agreeing with what Socrates generally stands for. Yeah, you know, we talk about the virtues and, you know, justice, most of all. And here, let me give you a speech. And like a rehearsed speech, like one of the rehearsed, of the many rehearsed wisdoms. And it's great that it's like a long story because stories have like this wonderful thing where they can be interpreted in any number of ways. And it's already part of ancient Greek culture to say mythology, to tell mythological stories over and over again to make different points and then change it every time. It happens in the symposium as well. They all say the same exact story. It's just that they spin it off in a different way every time. And um, wait, and I have to ask there, I just talked to somebody. There's a there's a current trend in the business world in America where everybody wants to say they're a storyteller. Whatever you do, whatever your job is, it's a story. And my friend pitched me this one that was sort of a he was laughing at it. He's like, these are butchers and the butchers are talking about, no, no, the food tells a story, how we cut these things. So the storytelling, we're, our brains are built to be attracted to this. We love stories. And it is fascinating. Thousands of years ago, Socrates hones right in on that and says, I got, I know how attractive this storytelling is. I'm not sure this is getting you to the truth, but boy, it sounds good. It sounds really good. Yeah. And, and and there we have, I mean, it's like a very, 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 very long story. It is long. <laughs> and, um, and, and then Socrates like kind of wants to cut it off. So he said, you know, I don't have that much time. I just want to have a conversation. Let, let's uh, like get to the point. You know, these things, right? You're an expert. Like, of course, I am the most expert of experts. I'm like, I'm just roughly paraphrasing. And and then uh, Socrates like just puts like a, a sequence of questions. But, and that's my take on it. He's, uh, as you described it uh, in a previous conversation we, we had, he, he's like, uh, what was like a bad uh, kind of, okay, I'm I'm missing the word now. But it's kind of he's he's not doing it on good. He's doing it on bad faith. Yes, although Socrates never, he Socrates is usually pretty good about not telling someone you're a bad person. You're doing this in bad faith. He just leads to the person to the end result, which is you're probably not doing this for the right reasons. He never usually seldom calls people out directly. Yeah, in the dialogues and tells them you're bad. Yeah, in, instead he argues in bad faith uh, with Protagoras. And so he, he kind of like tells him like, so what, what's virtue like? And to me, it's kind of entertaining when people just like take this conversation and they're like, well, it appears that the Platonist and Socrates believe that virtue is like this or something like that. No, it, it, it's kind of like, well, what's virtue like? Is it like gold, like different pieces of gold? And, and this is where we come to, is it like, a, or is it like the face? And this is where we come to this this, uh, distinction, which appears in Aristotle as well. Like, is it, uh, and it's a mathematical distinction, actually. Is it like a discrete quantity or is it the continuous quantity? Like, is it like gold? Like I can just chop gold in different pieces, bigger or smaller, it's still gold. Or is it like the parts of the face? Like each part of the face is separate, et cetera. Like actually, uh, if Protagoras was someone who could do his own intellectual labor, he would say, what, what nonsense are you talking about? <laughs> Instead, he chose one. Right. He fell for the trap. And after that, uh, like it, it's kind of like he got hooked, lion and singer, and Socrates just had to spin it in different ways, like just move the rod around in different ways. And then Protagoras was forced to just like follow around. And of course, the interesting thing is that Protagoras like really, really tries to get out of this situation and stick to what he said before. He doesn't retract it. So that's a bonus for Protagoras that he doesn't retract his position. He just like stays stern on board. He's like, I said it. It's what I said. And now I'm going to end this conversation because if we continue it, I will be proven wrong. And you have so much potential, Socrates. 
Uh, it's interesting you say that people say, well, I know what the Platonist, I know what the Socratic, I know what the Aristotelian, I'm for sure clear what they would have believed. And when you read the stuff, it, I, they ask wonderful questions and they dig into these things, but I don't know, what's your take? Do you think the end result of reading this old philosophy is that you will arrive at an answer or is the end result, especially with Plato and Socrates, you're just going to ask better questions about things and the answer you will come up with, you don't need to believe what Socrates or Plato or Aristotle tell you. Follow the reasoning, just follow their reasoning. Are they asking you to have better reasoning or are they telling you something about the world or both? Well, the, the, the thing, it, it, it's more the latter of what you described, but at the same time, I, I'm going to say that uh, in a more, let's say, um, in a broader way, each step in this path, the person will be a different person. It's like a path of growth. It, 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 it's kind of like there, there are many people, they don't want to get a job because there's a kind of like discourse going around, like, you know, you get a job and then they take away your time and they take a, like, find a job that can help you develop in a certain way. Once you develop what you want to develop through that job, because immediately you're part of a community, everyone is hopefully good faith striving towards something. They're not just bullshitting themselves and everyone else around them, hopefully. And if this constellation of things happens, then the person will grow in a certain way. And then also at the same time, like detach uh, yourself from like the title of your job or other things that have nothing to do with uh, who you are as a whole, but are word games that hold people in line to stay there even when they're finished with their um, path at that specific crossroad. Like, if a person, and, and now I'm deviating a bit, but I want to come back. If a person is in a place where they're bored, get out. If a person is in a place where they're surrounded by people who are wasting their time because they're, um, and now it's, it's kind of getting personal, but I still want to come back to what I was saying before and answering your question. To people are basically, um, wasting each other's time in ego contests and trying to climb some kind of like, I don't know, hierarchy or whatever, instead of in investing their time to uh, going somewhere like Odysseus in his journey, trying to go somewhere and going through different trials or Hercules going through this trial. Like Hercules also had, had a, for a certain amount of time, had a beach boss. Right. <laughs> so, like, uh, people think, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to be, like, free from everything, and I'm just going to exist in some space. Like, you don't really exist. Like, okay, maybe I'm really deviating now, but I'm having fun, you know? Like, people <laughs> only really exist when they're in a community. And, and So that... That is extremely Aristotelian and extremely uh, Stoic talks about there's you, especially the Roman Stoics, even as much as you are independently responsible for your own feelings about things, you only fully exist when you are part of some polis. You only fully exist when you are part of some group of people. Um, but as you... <laughs> But as you said, all the things you talked about, ego contests, complacency, um, nasty bosses, this is all the result of living in community. So I could understand people's inclination to be like, well, I'm just going to drop out of that. And I can understand people who like they found a place they can tolerate, but they're bored, but they can tolerate this. They have enough money to go do whatever they want on the side, but the job doesn't challenge them. They're not interested in it. They don't like the people they work with. I mean, complacency sounds good. Giving up on it sounds good. I think these philosophers are asking for something different than that. From your perspective, what are they? What are they asking? Because complacency sounds pretty good, and giving up on hating all that crap. I don't want to be in that group. Suck. I'm going to be by myself. 
Yeah, well, um, what Aristotle specifically looks for is like the ideal best possible system. And this uh, encapsulates, and by, by the way, I want to say that I agree with everything that you said before. I, I, I find it great. Thank you so much. And, um, and, and, and yeah, so what he wants to do is to find a system where the ideal, like in the police, the ideal polities, like the citizen, coincides with the ideal person. And by the way, when I say ideal, I, I don't mean anything platonic or anything. I, I, mean, I mean it in the modern sense, like where the, the best possible citizen matches up with the best possible human being. And, and, and this is what Aristotle is, is trying to figure out, like which would be that system where they both come together instead of like being split up. Uh, I would say it's not. So the, here, here's the, so I'll just take it back to Tolstoy. In Tolstoy's confession, um, he specifically talks about the di the the difficulty of what you're talking about. He identifies the problem with materialist society. He identifies this this ideal, and he complains about the hard sciences and the soft sciences, philosophy, humanities. He says the hard sciences don't care about the meaning of life. They're simply gathering data, and they're telling you information about how the world works. Boom. The philosophy, humanities, literature, psychology, sociology, he's like, all these smart people, they have not come up with the answer. So they say they want the meaning of life, but they disagree. So here's this Aristotle's idea that there could be, we could figure out what the ideal citizen is, and we can match that with the ideal society. I would say human civilization proves that that particular quest, if that is your goal, what is the point of that goal? It cannot happen. Everyone is everyone disagrees. Political systems differ. They come in and out of fashion. The ideal citizen with the ideal polis, do you think this is actually a thing to strive for? Well, the, this is another way to look at it. Well, the, okay. the, there's one way, and one way is to have a bunch of, let's say, intellectuals, like in some echo chamber together, holding hands and repeating the same uh, things like mantras. And every time, like, like, you know, like they come up with the same ideas, they congratulate each other, they hold hands, and then one person says it and everyone else is clapping. And then the other person says it and everyone else is clapping. And, and, and somehow they think that, oh, yeah, these are the ideas. It, it, it's kind of like Aristotle um, is kind of uh, parallel to, to some story I, I read a few years ago about a man who tested uh, tomato sauces. So up until that point, they had uh, experts who came up with how a tomato sauce should taste like. Okay. And uh, they, they just uh, top-down implemented how a tomato sauce should taste like, and they got X sales. Uh, and then if another person came and uh, replaced the previous person, they would change the tomato sauce taste a bit, Okay. And then if it just happened that more sales were generated, there would be a success. If it happened that the sales dropped, they would quickly revert to the previous recipe. Well, we tried it. It's fine. Then there comes this guy and he takes like a sample, like he fills up a theater with people and he gives them all like different tomato variations of tomato sauce. And then he asks them to say which one they like the best. And then this is a tomato sauce that gets sold and then sales go up. Aristotle is not like a random theoretician from a lofty tower who just like divides his wisdom as amongst the people. He is he, like, uh, like I described before, like he has his people, he sends them in the world. Right. He goes in the world himself and then they, they gather data, they, they, they have conversations and dialogues with people over and over and over and over. And then they kind of collect, and this is the method, they kind of collect 
all the main opinions that these people have about where they live and what they're doing. These are translated in English as common places in some translations. And, and then they're like, okay, these are the common places in this city. And these are the common places in this general area. And then they kind of sit down and say, okay, which, which ones are um, used or said the most in uh, cities which have like this type of constitution or in cities which are in this area. And this way they kind of come, and I'm using kind of all the time because it's never 100% accurate. They kind of come to the general way people in this area think. And once they get into the general thinking process of uh, people who are under a certain constitution and they really see that like, if it's a tyranny, then people kind of think like this. If it's a tyranny, the tyrant kind of acts like this. If it's a democracy, things kind of go that way. Then they can come to general, and here comes the naughty word, truths. <laughs> and then once they assemble these general truths, they put them together, they compile them, and they present them to everyone. They say, this is kind of like the truth about this constitution. This is kind of like the truth about people who live in uh, cities, who get incentives uh, every time there's a war to go and fight. This is called citizen courage. It's not like courage. Actually, we interviewed uh, professional soldiers. We interviewed people who uh, fought as soldiers even when they were citizens because of some war. And this is kind of like the line we take on courage. Um, and, 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 and this is how it goes. Now, the problem is, of course, that when we rely on opinions to make conclusions that we are of course going to get a lot of things wrong because what's stopping us from uh, getting to the truth? Language. And, but how, how can we explain the truth? We only have language. So. The other thing I did like that you said, hey, we're present. If you have this kind of government, this is how people think and this is how this functions. If you have that kind of government, we've seen that people think this way and this is how that functions. It feels very contextual as opposed to a vision of sort of a one. Well, I don't know. Maybe this was Aristotle's idea that there could be an ideal constitution for all people. I don't think I remember that as his goal. Um, maybe an ideal constitution for the people who live in this place at this time. Do you remember specifically, I don't know if he spelled out specifically, I want the whole world under a single thing. I think we can all come together, one common humanity, and all agree on everything. That probably didn't happen. Uh, no, it, um, okay, maybe I didn't explain it quite clearly. He didn't say I, I want uh, one common empire of all. He said, I want to figure out a system of community in which the ideal community participant is matched with the ideal person, or like better said, because ideal is a funky word, um, the best possible participant of a community matches the best possible human being. And this doesn't mean that like everyone is under one, uh, let's say totalitarian system. It more means that everyone, they can organize their community however they like. There can be differences, but generally speaking, there are like some things which they all try to um, have in common. And, and, and that's why he calls, um, this uh, system constitutional. It's because there, there are just some lines, some things that are written that are kept in common because this is the best possible iteration of these things. And then uh, there are many unrefined things around, like 
we, we let people like of each individual police because it's not empire, like it's police, like it's a city, it's a community. We let each individual community to figure out the rough edges by themselves. But generally speaking, points one, two, three, four, stay. Okay, so I'll just ask you, I'll just lay um, what I like as the best devil's advocate argument. It's a bit like Tolstoy argues about people say they have the meaning of life, but they all disagree. People lay it at the feet of these philosophers and these great civilizations, and they say, well, if if you can learn from philosophy the commonplaces and the general things that are true of all places where you have the ideal citizen matched up with the ideal government, well, how come that just doesn't happen? Is it just because we're bad and we make the wrong choices? We have free will. Why is it that we haven't I don't, but people, people's impression, maybe this is a misperception, but we feel like some people feel we have not progressed. The same problems Aristotle and Socrates faced thousands of years ago are oftentimes the same human problems we have today. The descriptions they give of bravery and cowardice, of ignorance and intellect, of hierarchies and people, the rich and the poor, those are problems a long time ago and they remain problems today. And we apparently have not come up with the ideal government. So then people say, well, all this thinking, that's great, but where has it led us? Mm-hmm. I'll yeah. just dump that on you. So, oh, okay. thank you so, so much. <laughs> it's my time to shine. Well, <laughs> <laughs> solve solve for human civilization. Here we go. Yeah, and, and well, that's why studying and applying uh, philosophy is uh, so important because it allows people to think about these things and reach their own conclusions. And in the process, reach a better destination in their own life. And now, of course, you, you might say, well, wow, wasn't there any politician who ever read this? Like, yeah, of course, politicians read this all the time. And at times, it just so happens that when they read them, for some reason, they decide that they could also apply such principles. And with such principles, I don't mean like the principles on the paper, but the principles that with their better judgment, they came up with by uh, putting the work, working hard, and uh, like gaining also experience in being uh, politicians. And then out of the blue, you have like, what we call like this rare germ called a working community, like a, a community that just works. But how long does it last? Right. Because eventually they will be replaced by less and less capable people. And, and, and this actually appears in the Republic in some form or another. I think it's the eighth book where uh, Socrates goes through um, a line of uh, different um, people who are supposed to be father and son. And at the same time, they're also supposed to represent different constitutions. So they're like the, um, this first person, like they are um, very like, they, they're exactly the, the right politician, they, they, they are the, not the one we want, but the one we desperately need. Okay. And he's a system creator. Like if uh, the police is a board game, he's the kind of person who can build a really, 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 really good board game. And then he's succeeded by people like with, if we have a really, really, really good board game, we, we don't need any other board game builders. We need board game players. So the people who succeed him are the best possible board game players. But of course, the board game players, they, they, they kind of like in order for them, because they are like yeah, the democratic, like they want glory because they, the glory needs to be justified, they have to follow the rules to the letter. Sure. And if they, if they cheat, they already feel bad about it because it kind of fakes everything. 
like if I'm playing a board game and I cheat, maybe uh, I, f- I feel nice because I cheated the others or something like that. But actually, I'm spoiling my own experience of playing the game. So there's a whole a lot of talk about honor and, and keeping moral uprightness during these times. Like maybe they're in a war and they're killing other people from other policies. But by themselves, like when they're interacting with each other, they have like a very, very structured code of honor among them. And they're kind of like, you know, like these birds with the heavy plumage. They meet each other and then they have to dance around for like half an hour or some, some kind of like weird ritual. And then Wait, they so, but are you getting other. are you getting to the point that this is bad? Uh, and I'm getting to the point where they are replaced by people who don't want to be burdened by all these rituals. That's why I kind of like styled it with the rituals. They they kind of want to get to the money. Okay. Yeah. So they they don't care about the rules. They don't care about the rituals. They just want the hard cash, and they are the oligarchs. They already have the powers generationally. Like maybe their great 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 grandfather was like this golden soul who could create this board game, and then their great grandfather was this great warrior who could play this board game, and now they are the people who are like running away with all the money and in the process destroying the board game they cheat 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 and through cheating they destroy the game because if ever if certain people get everything and there's no system which uh, gives everyone else a chance to also get something then who wants to play that game and so it leads to Uh, revolution and we have democracy and in democracy the problem is and I'm talking I'm not talking about modern democracy I'm talking about democracy as expressed in Plato's work Um, it's kind of like all opinions are the same there's nothing which uh, gives some kind of measurement of things because everything is the same so for, for example, um, it not I, actually, I'm not going to give an example. I'm just going to say it, it makes nothing matter. There's no competition anymore. And there are like some people who are just itching to get ahead of the others. And then out of them, and this is the last part, and then I stop with this, uh, there, there comes like a very devious person. And because there's no, let's say, kind of like standard for everyone to keep sharp at. He can just like fool them. He gets fooled himself by others. And then he occupies the position of tyrant. And uh, he just thinks that he's like very special. And he thinks that everyone else is beneath him. And he like just shoves them away. Even though in the beginning, when he wanted that job, he was like uh, begging and pleading and promising things and saying, I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to be your best friend. I'm what you need. And now he has received the power and the game is completely destroyed and everyone is miserable and they're just waiting for eventually another person to come to create that board game again and for the process to be repeated. Okay, so is the final is the final end game of philosophy that there's these cycles that you can identify, but they feel very inevitable. That feels like an inevitable cycle. So, and I would say looking at human civilization, the inevitable cycle is the thing that we see enacted. And that's the thing. So, but the idea that we could break out of that cycle, you don't have to have this problem. As long as you don't leave the second generation, you don't allow that third generation or fourth generation to develop. If you make sure everybody understands how the board game was made and why it was made, then we can also play and remember. But maybe no matter what you do with every government that has some has board game makers at the heart of it at the beginning, no matter what you do, there's a dissipation of their energy and you just can't rejuvenate it. Well, um, the platonic answer, of course, e- echoes the answer of some um, 
oriental religions and says like, well, once you overcome this, you don't come back to this. Yeah, he, right. he, he believed in reincarnation, so he thought, you know, okay, uh, they're like the, the, all these levels. I'm just, I'm just going to level up. And next life, I'm, I'm just not going to be here. Maybe I'll be sent to another planet or something. I don't know. 